Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 8 When Zarathustra had said this to his heart, he loaded the corpse onto his back and set out on his way. And he had not yet gone a hundred paces before a man sneaked up to him and whispered in his ear. And behold, the one addressing him was the jester from the tower. Go away from this town, O Zarathustra, he said. Too many people here hate you. You are hated by the good and the righteous, and they call you their enemy and despiser. You are hated by the believers of right belief, and they call you a danger to the multitude. It was lucky for you that they laughed at you, and verily, you were talking just like a jester. It was lucky for you that you made company with the dead dog. By abasing yourself like that, you saved your own skin for today. But now go forth from this town, or tomorrow I shall jump over you, a living man over a dead one. And when he had said this, the man disappeared, but Zarathustra walked on farther through the dark lanes. At the gate of the town he was met by the grave diggers. They shone their torch in his face, recognized Zarathustra, and mocked him mightily. Zarathustra is carrying the dead dog away. How nice that Zarathustra has become a gravedigger, for our hands are too clean for this particular roast. Does Zarathustra want to rob the devil of his mouthful? On you go, then, and good luck with your meal. If only the devil were not a better thief than Zarathustra. He will steal them both. He will eat them both. And they laughed among themselves and all put their heads together. Zarathustra said not a word in reply, and went on his way. After walking for two hours, past forests and swamps, he had heard too much hungry howling of wolves, and began to feel hungry himself. So he stopped at an isolated house where a light was burning. Now hunger waylays me, said Zarathustra, like a robber. In forests and swamps my hunger waylays me, and in the deep of night. Marvelous moods my hunger has. Often it comes to me only after mealtimes. And today it did not come the whole day. Where can it have been? And with that, Zarathustra knocked on the door of the house. An old man appeared. He was carrying a light and asked, Who comes to me here and to my wretched sleep? A living man and a dead one, said Zarathustra. Give me something to eat and drink, which I forgot about today. He who feeds the hungry refreshes his own soul. Thus does wisdom speak. The old man went away, but came back immediately, and offered Zarathustra bread and wine. This is a wicked part of the world for the hungry, he said. And that's why I live here. Beast and human come to me, the hermit. But bid your companion eat and drink too. He is wearier than you. Zarathustra answered, My companion is dead. It will be difficult for me to persuade him. That's nothing to me, said the old man grumpily. Whoever knocks on my door also has to take what I offer him. Eat and then fare you well. Thereupon Zarathustra walked for another two hours, trusting his path in the light of the stars. For he was used to walking at night, and loved looking into the face of all that sleeps. But when the morning dawned, Zarathustra found himself in a deep forest, and he could no longer see any path. So he laid the dead man in a hollow tree at his head, 
for he wanted to protect him from the wolves, and laid himself down on the mossy ground. And soon he fell asleep, weary in body, but with his soul unmoved. Hello, everyone, and welcome to sections 8, 9, and 10 of Zarathustra's prologue. That was just section 8. Uh, I'll be going into a bit of analysis on this guy before we get into sections 9 and 10. They do deal with slightly different content, so I wanted to split them up. Figured that would probably be easiest for everyone. And then we can finally, finally, finally make it into the actual book. And luckily it starts with one of my favorite sections. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So, in the previous sections, we met the tightrope walker in the market square. He started doing his dance, and then the jester, this foolish figure who doesn't take things seriously and just messes around, jokes around, jumps over him, causes the tightrope walker to fall. Zarathustra talks to him for a bit. He then dies, and Zarathustra decides that he's going to bury his new friend. Section 8 has to deal with Zarathustra leaving the town, and he encounters a couple of different folks on the way, uh, two of whom I'm really going to get into. So the first one that he runs into is the jester himself. So as Zarathustra's walking away, this jester comes up to him and starts threatening him, saying that, oh, it's a good thing you're leaving, otherwise I'd kill you tomorrow. You're hated by the good and the righteous. You're hated by the believers of right belief. He's essentially saying that the arbiters of what is good and righteous and holy and suitable for human beings to do, as this community sees it, don't like him. They see Zarathustra as this person who's coming to challenge their authority, who's challenging the presumptions of their value systems and what they actually believe in, and therefore they don't like him. Uh, it's probably not that conscious. Most of the time, if you go around trying to poke around at people's beliefs or people's value systems or, or people's positions in a society, uh, they may not consciously understand what you're doing, but it's a very instinctual reaction for people to be very defensive about either their positions in society or their belief systems. Really, if you, if you take away or undercut anyone's belief system, it, it causes a huge amount of stress to the human animal to like try and deal with the world if you've just undercut some of the very fundamental underlying values that they believe in, consciously or unconsciously, probably unconsciously. Uh, because as soon as you take that away, people don't know how to act. Now Zarathustra and a lot of this book in itself have sort of gone through that experience where they really looked within themselves at the value systems that, in this case, Zarathustra himself created, putting good and evil at the basis of everything, or other value systems that dominated in the West, so Christianity, sort of everything that we know and love in the West now. Zarathustra went away, realized what his actions were based on due to these belief systems that he either created or believed in, saw that they were on shaky ground, dismissed them, went through a period of nihilism, and then basically tried to invent a new system or create a new system much more solidly based in true reality that you could then base actions on. And so essentially Zarathustra as this prophetic type of character, he's centuries ahead or decades ahead 
in his way of seeing the world compared to these folks, and they hate him because he comes in there trying to change everything that they're doing, and they don't like that. Because, well, one, most people don't want to go have their entire belief system undermined and go through the resulting nihilism or questioning of how the heck to operate in the world. Uh, and that's probably the main thing that they're trying to get at here. So that's what the jester basically tells Zarathustra, that the good and righteous hate him. You're hated by the believers of right belief, and they call you a danger to the multitude, that these good and righteous people are the defenders of the herd of people that live in the city, and that Zarathustra only brings bad things to them, even though Zarathustra is a more enlightened being than them, sees that in the short term there might be the destruction of a lot of errant ways of thinking, but in the long run it's probably a good thing. And that's what Zarathustra's good news is going to be about through the rest of this book. And he'll, he'll also provide some guidance on some of the resultant feelings that we as readers are going to go through when we critically analyze some of our thoughts, see whether they're baseless or not. And if they are baseless, get rid of them. And what we do in that terrifying period of not knowing and how we can change ourselves to embrace that or work with it or find new answers to old questions. The second group of people that Zarathustra meets are the gravediggers. They, similar to the jester, not as violently, but similar to the jester, just start making fun of Zarathustra. They say, oh, it's a good thing you're taking this corpse away. We don't want any piece of that action. Uh, our hands are too clean for that. And so just a note on the gravediggers and graves in general. This symbolism is going to come up quite a bit in this book. Uh, it's not going to be the most frequent topic, but there are a couple chapters that deal with graves and grave diggers and graves breaking open and redeeming the dead and all that sort of stuff. This one took me a while to figure out, but I think the best way to think about it, and it's pretty obvious, so <laughs> so much for me taking years to figure this one out, but uh, the thing, the things that you put into graves are things that have died. In biological terms, that's bodies, corpses... You can sort of think of organic beings that are dead as beings that are unable to function in reality anymore. They've outlived their ability to cope with the environment. Uh, and it's not just bodies that die, it's also ideas, different theories of the world. Uh, so the Ptolemaic view of the universe where Earth is at the center of the universe, a lot of people believe that, a lot of people built that into their way of viewing reality. And then when Copernicus came along and changed that, he said, no, 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 we revolve around the sun. All the weird orbits you'd have to draw to make Ptolemaic astronomy work don't make any sense. We actually revolve around the sun, not the sun around us. That change in thinking, it was very strongly resisted, probably by people who would describe themselves as the good and the righteous or the believers of right belief. And people really resisted that change. It, it took a lot to change people's minds. And that idea, the Ptolemaic version of the universe, eventually died. And so with grave diggers in this book and graves in general, you can see graves as being where old ideas that no longer work are put. And the second thing about graves is it's not just a hole in the ground where you pile some dirt on some old thing that doesn't work anymore. But having a grave marker, having a statue, having 
any sort of marking on a grave is a way of honoring and remembering the thing that's buried there. So even from the simplest headstone at the local cemetery to the biggest tombs and the biggest memorial statues, there are all ways of honoring particular people, particular things, or the ideals and values that particular individuals stood for. So you can think in America of the memorial to JFK. If you go to JFK's funeral plot in Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., it's a really big, beautiful plot with an undying flame. And that represents all sorts of things about JFK and trying to let his memory live on and really valuing all the things that he instantiated about the American spirit. Uh, the various tombs of unknown soldiers that different countries have erected largely after World War I or World War II honor the spirit and memory of all those people who died fighting for the values that their countries went to war to protect. And so you can sort of see that graves aren't just a place necessarily to put a body, but they're also places to remember things that people can go visit and be inspired by this true instantiation of particular values that they and their, their communities care about. So in the United States, it might be bravery, independence, fighting for those things, fighting for freedom. In other countries, it might be other things. A sort of neat counterexample is what the United States did with the body of Osama bin Laden. Now, you can argue whether, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist and you think that they had Osama bin Laden for years before they released him. But there's also, if you look into the actual story that was released, uh, once they got him, once they hunted him down and shot him, instead of bringing his body back to the United States to bury him, they just basically dumped him in the ocean. And the idea, it's actually a very interesting one, they didn't want to create a sort of counter-memorial site on American territory that potential jihadists could go see and be inspired by Osama bin Laden's horrible actions against the United States. So they saw it as being better to dump him in the ocean, not give him a proper burial so that no one could go visit and worship at that site. Because as we mentioned, cemeteries, gravestones, act as tributes to particular things. They inspire us. They remind us. And so in this example with the grave diggers, these are the people who are sort of creating those memorials. So they're not just people digging a hole in the ground. They're, they're the ones building this memorial plot, this area for particular things to be remembered and particular people or ideas to be honored. So when they say, oh, we don't, we don't want to bury this person, our hands are too clean for that, you can sort of see those grave diggers as the instruments of the city that decide what is honorable and what is not honorable, probably defined by what the good and righteous or believers of right belief might say, and certainly would teach in their society, because all the people in the society are taught under the auspices of what these people think to be good and righteous and uh, of right belief. And it's true today everywhere you look, if you... If you live in a very liberal society, very liberal values are taught as the highest beliefs you can have. And if you have opposite beliefs, uh, it's either hate speech or you're some backwards idiot or some other thing. They basically forbid you from thinking something opposite. If you live in a very conservative area, 
the opposite happens. Very conservative values are taught to you, and the, the believers of right belief, the good and the righteous, are sort of the, the highest instantiation of those values in that society. They're the people that organize the local bake sale, that sit on the school council, that run for political office, that fill all the different sort of official functions within a society that help keep that society strong and believing in those same ideas. And so the gravediggers here are acting as essentially the group that helps to honor the people and values that make that society what it is. So the United States will build a, a, a place of worship, a place of remembrance, a place of honor for a JFK, but they'll dump one of their mortal enemies in the ocean because they don't want anyone to honor that. So when you're thinking about grave diggers or graves in this book, that's an interesting way of looking at it, and we'll definitely get back to that. So then after that, Zarathustra essentially leaves the city, takes the corpse over his shoulders. He finds a hermit, uh, gets some food and drink, which is probably like one of the funny jokes in the book where the hermit essentially wants to force Zarathustra to feed a corpse, which is sort of a weird thing. Uh, but I don't have too much to say on that section. So now we can get into Zarathustra's prologue, part nine. Zarathustra's prologue, part nine. Long did Zarathustra sleep, and not only the dawn passed over his countenance, but also the forenoon. At last, however, his eyes opened. Amazed, Zarathustra looked into the forest and the stillness. Amazed, he looked into himself. He then quickly rose, like a seafarer who all at once sees land, and rejoiced, for he saw a new truth. And then he talked thus to his heart. A light has dawned for me. Companions I need, and living ones. Not dead companions and corpses that I carry with me wherever I will. But living companions I need, who follow me because they want to follow themselves, and to wherever I will. A light has dawned for me. Let Zarathustra not talk to the people, but to companions. Zarathustra shall not become shepherd and sheepdog to a herd. To lure many away from the herd, for that have I come. The people and herd shall be angry with me. Zarathustra wants to be called a robber by the herdsmen. Herdsmen, I say but they call themselves the good and the righteous. Herdsmen, I say, but they call themselves believers of right belief. Behold the good and the righteous. Whom do they hate the most? The one who breaks their tablets of values, the breaker, the lawbreaker. Yet that is the creator. Behold the believers of all beliefs. Whom do they hate the most? The one who breaks their tablets of values, the breaker, the lawbreaker, yet that is the creator. Companions the creator seeks, and not corpses, nor herds or believers either. Fellow creators the creator seeks, those who inscribe new values on new tablets. Companions the creator seeks, and fellow harvesters, for all that is with him stands ripe for the harvest. But the hundred sickles are lacking, so he plucks ears of corn and is sorely vexed.
companions the creator seeks, and such as know how to wet their sickles. Destroyers they will be called, and despisers of good and evil. But harvesters are they, and celebrants too. Fellow creators Zarathustra seeks, fellow harvesters and celebrants Zarathustra seeks. What can he create with herds and herdsmen and corpses? And you, my first companion, fare you well. Securely I buried you in your hollow tree. Securely I hid you from the wolves. But now I part from you. The time has come. Between dawn of morning and dawn of morning, a new truth has come to me. No herdsman shall I be, nor digger of graves. With the people I will not talk even one more time. For the last time I have spoken to a dead man. With the creators, the harvesters, the celebrants will I make my company. Will I make company. With the creators, the harvesters, the celebrants will I make company. The rainbow will I show them, and all the stairways to the overhuman. To the solitaries shall I sing my song, and to the dualitaries. And whoever yet has ears for the unheard of, his heart will I make heavy with my happiness. To my goal will I go, I walk my walk. Over those who hesitate and are dilatory, I shall leap away. Thus may my going be their going under. So that was section 9 of Zarathustra's prologue. And essentially it's dedicated to his discovery of a new truth. And I absolutely love how Nietzsche describes this discovery. It's Zarathustra just looks into himself, and then all of a sudden this new light dawns on him. This new truth dawns within him. And, and that's sort of the feeling I get a lot when I read Nietzsche, is that since he doesn't lay out his arguments, point A, point B, point C, therefore D, when you're thinking through the things that Nietzsche is saying, you're not coming up with, oh yeah, A, B, and C are right, so therefore D. That sort of, that sort of logical proof, it's an extension of arguments A, B, and C. And so that sort of truth is, while useful and valuable in many situations, certainly, it's certainly not the way that Nietzsche goes about it. And as I've cautioned you guys more than a couple of times when we're reading this book we really have to picture what he's talking about really get a picture of the arguments Nietzsche is trying to make and when you look for truth that way you're really trying to compare your experience your understanding of the world with what Nietzsche is trying to show and for the most part it's probably going to be very much out of alignment. And you're going to need to see why is he painting this picture that way? Why is he comparing the good and the righteous to herdsmen? What does that mean? Like, why is he trying to say that? Can I picture the people as, as sort of a herd of, of sheep that need to be protected? And when you think of truth that way, or when you're, when you're trying to picture your own experiences, and really trying to understand something that you've been missing or don't understand... The sort of truth that pops out is it's more like a re it's more like a revelation than it is a A B C therefore D, 
you're essentially trying to take this constellation of experiences and sort out what the heck am I doing wrong and when you figure out what the individual linchpin is usually it's one it could be any number of linchpins but when you figure out what one of those important linchpins is you can you have this experience of dawning realization of oh like okay that explains why i wasn't able to do things a b c d and e it's because i was missing point h i i didn't have the right disposition so if you're talking about attracting members of the gender that you're interested in and it never seems to be working well first of all a lot of people are going to just put that on the external world and say oh well, they're just a bunch of idiots they don't know what they're missing and that's sort of the brash, stupid way of doing it. If you have any sense whatsoever, you're going to think about maybe what you're doing wrong and take responsibility for that. And if you do, often it's so hard to figure out what you're doing wrong because it's not necessarily one thing. It's part of it is the external world, but part of it is definitely you. On average, it's going to be 50-50. Like any interaction you have with anyone else, on average, it's 50% your fault, 50% their fault if it doesn't go well. And my approach has been to take that to the extreme and assume that it's always my fault, therefore find the reason to make those interactions go better. But getting back to the main point, when you're trying to figure out, crap, I've, I've been doing so poorly in this one particular area, what's going on? And if you figure it out or someone says something or you're watching a movie where, where one of the characters is doing really well in that arena and you're trying to map okay, here's my experience, here's what I've been doing, here's what they seem to be doing, and you're trying to figure out what that delta is. You figure out that the delta might be the result of one, two, three, four different linchpins, and when you figure one of them out, that understanding, it, it creates this revelatory, amazing experience within you where you, you sort of post hoc resolve a lot of outstanding issues in your brain that you haven't been able to figure out right now and it's not this oh a b c therefore d type like oh yeah i guess that's true like i'll add that to my knowledge bank of things that are true it's this sort of bodily feeling or mental feeling it's both probably where your body recognizes all these connections in the brain that have been missing that can now sort of understand the situation a lot better than you have up till now and so if you figure out oh you know things haven't been going well with my friends they seem sort of miffed when they see me or they're not as interested in my stories as they should be like darn what the heck's happening and you realize oh crap for the last year i've been cutting people off and been really rude interrupting their stories so they don't like having me around or listening to my stories as soon as you realize that it's not that you're saying A, B, C, therefore D. You're, you're taking this whole wealth of accumulated experience that you don't have an answer for, and the answer is flooding together all at once. And so you, you simultaneously answer a whole bunch of problems that you've been facing. And it's a really overwhelming experience, or it can be. And so Nietzsche, he writes a lot of things like this. And this book being sort of an ideal character facing all the situations that you sort of need to go through to get to that ideal or to try and be that ideal. 
and all the different thoughts and beliefs that you need to challenge within yourself that you probably unconsciously hold, maybe even consciously if you're introspective and you've figured some of this stuff out, is Nietzsche basically paints a picture of his ideal based on his philosophy, and you have to figure out, okay, what's the delta? And I know, Nietzsche, you're trying to explain why that delta is there, but I really have to picture it, and let me try and see if I can have that sort of revelatory experience where I figure out what I've been doing wrong, what I've been believing unconsciously, what I've been believing consciously, and why that's wrong and why I ought to change it. And then seeing in the real world, as you implement those solutions, your lived experience improve as you sort of take away all the rotten value system beliefs that you have through maybe no fault of your own, but you know, that you have, you've inherited, and you replace them with a better operating system, a better set of principles that are more in line with reality. And then all of a sudden you're just off to the races, like doing much better at your day-to-day -day life in different areas because you've cleared up a lot of your problems. And so when Nietzsche, getting back to section nine, describes how Zarathustra reacts to this new truth, it's not like he was lying there in the forest saying, oh, A, B, C, therefore D. It's, it's sort of Zarathustra having the same sort of prophetic insight into himself as he's trying to deliver to you in this book. And so he then goes on to basically describe that insight. And he says, you know, no longer am I going to choose my companions to be dead companions and corpses. So I'm not going to carry around a bunch of dead ideas or dead heroes, dead philosophers, dead, dead things with me. Which is sort of the risk of a lot of intellectual people who might be reading this. The philosophical type often, they, they're they a fairly lonely group of people because they're usually very intellectual. They can't really relate to a lot of folks. And so they, their friends become the books that they read. And I'm certainly guilty of that. Hell, I'm creating a podcast dedicated to one of them. But essentially that type of person is very at risk for having their only friends be a bunch of books and a bunch of ideas that they're not doing anything to bring into the real world. They're just sort of living in that realm with those people. And Zarathustra sets out to sort of challenge that way of living to say, you know what? No, don't just live with a bunch of dead ideas. Don't just live with a bunch of dead people. Try and find living companions. Try and find people that you can share your ideas with and bring them more into the world than you would if you're just sitting around reading all day. And I think that's sort of an insightful thing, even though it's not written in here anywhere. But philosophy, more generally, is a very interesting thing because you have people who are so ahead of their time that they come up with a certain way of seeing the world, a certain way of thinking, and then centuries later, it's taken for granted that the entire world has always believed that way of thinking that people have always thought that way. And essentially one person will come up with a great idea, but then if it's just sitting there and no one's doing anything with it, it will never make it into the world. It will never make it into the flesh of man. It will never become an operating, it will never become an operating system in other people's heads. 
And so Zarathustra here is very much saying, you know what, I want living companions, people I can share this with, people that are fellow harvesters and celebrants that love life and want to want to be creators and want to write new laws into new tablets. Um, and Zarathustra, he's here showing that not only is he a celebrant of life, but he wants to steal people away from the herd, steal people away from the good and the righteous, challenge the ones who are capable of thinking on his level, of breaking through the dogmas and the right beliefs that they've been taught in their society, to really challenge those things, see if there's any value in those ideas. If there is, great, use it. If there isn't, great, fix it. And then to create a bigger group of people who are doing this so that through time, the better ideas will win and become what are used in the value systems of people living. So that actually probably <laughs> is planning on going through this section a bit more line by line, but I think I pretty much said everything I needed to say there. That he challenges the good and the righteous, that he compares them to herdsmen, and he, he again, he's drawing a, a different picture than you might think of, okay, well, I tend to think of my city as being you know, a great place to live with a bunch of great people, and, you know, some of them are teachers, some of them are professors, some of them are politicians, and then the rest, oh, I know Mike, he works down at this company, and Sally, she works at this company, and she's, and Phyllis, she's a lawyer over here, and this guy serves coffee over here, um, and Nietzsche's really trying to make your thinking more binary, at least on this sort of society of good people level, and saying, you know, there, there are the herdsmen and the herd. And the herd is just sort of the unthinking mass of people who live in a society. They, they unquestioningly believe what they're taught. And what they're taught is legislated by the good and the righteous, the herdsmen. So these would be the politicians. These would be your teachers. These would be your parents. These would be any sort of authority figure in the place that you live, and as mentioned previously, depending where you live, you have different believers of right belief. You have different definitions of what is right belief. And so Nietzsche is not necessarily just challenging one paradigm of this. He's not just challenging Christianity because there's different types of Christianity. There's heartland American Christianity. There's sort of more liberal, progressive Christianity. There's Catholic Christianity. There's all sorts of different types. But he's basically saying that at least in Christianity generally, and probably other moral systems as well, there's a bunch of weird old rules in there that may or may not make sense and that we have to challenge them. And that people resist this challenge so much that they go out of their way to call people evil who even question them. And you can think of that today. Pick your favorite topic. If it's gay marriage, if you're a supporter of gay marriage, like, great, that's fantastic. But if someone comes along saying, oh no, we got to get rid of this gay marriage, even what, whatever argument they give, they could give a great argument, but you're not that person's not listening to that argument. That person is so dogmatic in their support for that issue, they'll never, never even give the ground to the person who doesn't support gay marriage. They'll, they'll call them guilty of hate crimes, they'll call them bigots, they'll call them homophobes, they'll, they'll throw all these names of good and evil at the person just to shut them up. And it's the same thing 20 years ago. If you're a supporter of gay marriage 20 years ago in Texas or Kansas or wherever, the opposite thing's going to happen. 
the sort of good old-fashioned conservative heartland person, he's going to call you a weirdo and an anti-religious uh, fool, and he'll throw all his words of good and evil at you if you're a supporter of gay marriage in that era. And so Nietzsche's not talking specifically about one type of person in one type of society. He's talking about this general trend within every society to have these are our rules of how to live. And if you don't believe them, we're going to cast you to be some sort of witch or heretic, try and burn you at the stake, which in today's parlance would be we're going to tweet every article about you out so that we get you fired and you can't possibly show your face anywhere if you share an unpopular opinion. But Nietzsche's just pointing that out, that that dynamic exists, that there's the correct thing to believe in, there's the herd of people that sort of go along with that, and that there's the type of person who Nietzsche's appealing to, who Zarathustra's appealing to, and hopefully through this podcast that maybe you guys might be, who just want to question. Regardless what society you live in, you, you really want to question what people believe in. You want to play devil's advocate on certain things. You want to challenge. You want to show the hypocrisy involved in being a believer of good belief, of right belief. And so that's why Nietzsche says, I don't want to be a herdsman. I don't want just a bunch of random thoughtless followers. I want to be called a robber by the herdsman. I want to steal people who are capable of thinking differently, of thinking critically, of thinking the way that Zarathustra and Nietzsche have begun to think because they have a much better view of reality and really have those people become their own group and become their own group of people who really challenges everything, who can create a new good and evil, who can really take what's good and take that and then leave the rest. And so I think that's a pretty good summary of section 9. So now we can get on to section 10. Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 10 This Zarathustra had spoken to his heart as the sun stood at midday. Then he looked inquiringly into the heights, for he heard above him the sharp cry of a bird. And behold, an eagle was sweeping in wide circles through the air, and on him hung a serpent, not like prey, but like a friend, for she kept herself coiled like a ring around his neck. It is my animals, said Zarathustra, and was glad in his heart. The proudest animal under the sun, and the cleverest animal under the sun. They have come out on reconnaissance. They want to know whether Zarathustra is still alive. Verily, am I still alive? More dangerous I found it among human beings than among beasts. Dangerous ways does Zarathustra walk. May my animals lead me. When Zarathustra had said this, he recalled the words of the holy man in the forest, then sighed and spoke thus to his heart, that I might be more clever, that I might be clever from the ground up, like my serpent, but that is to ask the impossible, so I ask my pride that it always go along with my cleverness, and if my cleverness should one day leave me, ah, how she loves to fly away. May my pride then fly with my folly. Thus began Zarathustra's going under. And that is the last section of Zarathustra's prologue. We meet his eagle and his serpent. 
Uh, these are... It's odd to call them characters, but they're characters that we will meet a couple times in the book. They're brought up a fair amount. Um, they're essentially... It's probably best to be seen as representations of the two of the aspects of Zarathustra's personality that he's very proud of. So the eagle represents his pride. Uh, I think that's a fairly common stereotype with eagles. They only look at the American quarter or any sort of American nationalistic information to see the eagle emblazoned everywhere. It's a symbol of pride frequently. And not just in America, but in societies everywhere through all time. And his serpent, his snake, which is the cleverest animal from the ground up. And again, in many mythologies, starting from the Genesis story in the Old Testament, the, the serpent is seen as this clever bringer of wisdom. And so Zarathustra has these two pets, I guess, or versions of, or animalizations of two of his ideal personality characteristics that come up a couple of times in the story. And they come join him here to help him begin his journey of speaking to different people that we're going to get into in the rest of the book. And he, he ends the prologue recalling the words of the old holy man in the forest, basically telling him, stay away from the people, be like me, a bear among bear, a beast among beasts. Sing songs in the woods, and I praise my God who is my God. And he remembers this and sighs and says, you know, I wish I were more clever. I, I wish I were more clever like my serpent. But it's impossible. It's too perfect. The intelligence and the wisdom is too perfect. And I'm just a human. So I ask that my pride that it always go along with my cleverness. And if my cleverness should one day leave me, ah, how she loves to fly away. May my pride then fly with my folly. And essentially he's saying he hopes that he doesn't become like the old holy man in the forest who sort of swears off humanity, just goes on, lives on his own and thinks he's being really clever, but he's, also, he's actually being quite doltish. He hopes that he doesn't become that sort of person who, you know, 40 years from now he's living in a forest or on a mountain and someone comes along to point out that he's done something wrong. He, he's basically chastening himself to say, you know what, keep yourself in line, be as clever as you can, be as proud as you can, but if your cleverness ever leaves you, if you start living the wrong way or doing something wrong, hopefully my pride leaves me too, so that, so that you know that you're doing something wrong. If you just have blind pride, but you're being stupid, that pride will cause you to lie to yourself and thinking that you're doing the right thing, that, oh yeah, I'm the man, I'm on the right course of action, even if you're doing something stupid. And so Nietzsche here, or Zarathustra here, is basically saying, you know what, if I ever err from my course, if I ever err from the right course, I hope that my pride flies away with my folly so that I can at least feel down about myself and feel stupid about myself and, and not be proud of myself as a signal that I'm doing something wrong. And so that's a very interesting way of looking at it, that those moments where you're not proud of yourself, where you're, you're disappointed in yourself, it's easy to get caught up in the negative feeling of that. But Zarathustra here has an interesting point. 
He says, don't take it negatively. Take it as a very positive sign that, that you've now figured out what you're doing wrong and that you can take action to change that, that you can take action to fix it. So when your pride flies away and you're disappointed in yourself, that's fantastic because you're not being stupid. You recognize that something's wrong. Your body's telling you that something's wrong. And you can think about it and try and course correct. So that's a very interesting thing for Nietzsche to finish off the prologue with. And it's a great thought from Zarathustra before we get into the actual book. Which we'll get into in the next podcast. Thank you, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @alexjdrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.